Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, your pediatric infectious disease researcher. And, well, no, that, that's not even right. Pediatric infectious disease doctor and researcher. I was about to say, it's too late. You've committed. That's what you are yeah. now. There's <laughs> no going back. <laughs> <laughs> it's, well, see, here's the thing. My research on toxoplasma is really microbiology. So it's not research on pediatric infectious disease. It's on a particular infectious disease. But my practice is on kids who have infectious diseases. So. It's it's a bit divergent, but it's not like mutually exclusive. I see. As I slowly <laughs> lower my face to <laughs> Oh no, shaking come on. shaking my head. <laughs> you can't do audio memes. <laughs> I can do I'm Captain Picarding right now. <laughs> how how are we supposed to convey this convincingly over audio i mean that's not fair to our audience audience whatever you think i look like in your heads imagine <laughs> me doing that flossing dance from Fortnite, <laughs> or from the Katy perry uh, music video and that one and now cute. imagine santosh doing the left shark dance yeah <laughs> which i i don't even get he was just kind of flapping Right, he was just kind of flapping his fins. Baby shark, do 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 do. Baby shark, do 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 do. Okay, yeah. so you guys, yeah, you just put an earworm in everybody's ear. That's right. See, you can do audio memes. Yeah. <laughs> now, All right. as I was saying, I know you missed us last week, or at least I hope you missed us. Maybe you didn't even know we were gone. That would make me sad because I'm so thankful for all of you out there. 
and your ratings, reviews, comments, and questions. <laughs> you whore. Hey, hey, <laughs> see this street corner? See this mini skirt? <laughs> I don't, nobody sees anything. It's audio. <laughs> Fine. If you're going to be I like can't. that, we, <laughs> I can't. we missed our episode last week due to a holiday vacation and an unexpected snowstorm. Yeah. But we're back this week, just like usual, bringing you everybody's favorite bi-monthly segment, Journal Club! Yay! This week, I rounded up a whole bunch of studies that are ridiculous, but studies at which I looked at and I said to myself, why? Why are we doing this? Who felt the important need to know this? And I'm going to let you answer as to whether or not that was a correct feeling. There is a lot of science being done out there that makes people kind of squinch their nose or their face a little times. We're saying, we're funding this? What the hell? We're funding this? And I completely understand. There are definitely projects that are totally useless and they somehow slip through the cracks and get funded. That's the small minority. But there are others which are answering Sometimes a legitimate question that's right in the study. Sometimes it's a question that's kind of adjacent to the study, and you have to you dig through and find it a little bit. Well then, Dr. Santosh, pediatric infectious yeah. disease doc and researcher, I submit to you, serious science or facepalm finding, <laughs> Okay, science proves lying shrinks your nose. <laughs> in what is yeah. in what is being dubbed reverse Pinocchio syndrome. Sure. That makes me think like he'd tell the truth and his nose would poke out the back of his head. No, no. <laughs> well, you know, it would just kind of shrink into his face first. You know, so that the little nub, that little wooden nub that made up his nose would kind of like you know, sneak back into his face. The brief thing I'm going to tell you is that the University of Granada in Spain published in the Journal of Investigative Psychology and Offender Profiling, they got a grant to study the relationship between noses and the truth, the inaccuracy of the polygraph and other so-called lie detectors in an effort to improve travel safety. <laughs> You know, you come to customs or whatever it is, or you have to declare your stuff, or they ask you a couple of questions. Hey, where are you coming? Business or pleasure? Are you a terrorist? Are you coming? No. Yeah. Uh, uh, Bob, <laughs> his nose is growing. Get him. Yeah. Well, in this case, shrinking. Right, right. right. Well. Because the growing nose doesn't help. Yeah. So <laughs> you're probably asking yourself, how does your nose shrink when you lie? And everyone's wondering... <laughs> How many of you just reached up to feel your face? This is a very visual episode for a radio medium. Yeah, <laughs> it is. We should really jump on YouTube from time to time. Uh, yeah, so do you want me to break this down so it actually makes sense, or do you want to rant and rave about it? No, no, no. I have four other stories I can rant and rave about. Tell us the science. <laughs> so... What these scientists were actually looking at was really, really simple. They were actually trying to see if you aimed a thermal imaging camera at a person while you were interviewing them, 
if you could see shifts in blood flow that actually happened in the face and in the head that could be predictive of telling a lie or telling the truth. So no, they were particularly focused on, oh, I bet you your nose shrinks when you lie. <laughs> they weren't trying to answer that question. They were actually saying, hey, when you feel psychological stress, especially, you know, when you're lying, you're trying to like, you know, get through telling something that you know is untrue, you have shifts in blood flow across your forehead, across your cheeks, across your nose. Um, you have uh, other excitatory molecules flooding your body like adrenaline and that causes things like your pupils to dilate. So could we actually take a thermal imaging camera and focus it on somebody's face and come up with indicators that correlate, not tell you for sure, but that correlate with the mental effort it takes to lie? And it just so happens that they found that the temperature in your nose when you're telling a lie tends to go down right at the tip of the nose, uh, you know, and what happens with that, okay, is that the nose shrinks a little bit because it gets a little cool. Also, your forehead heats up because thinking of a lie is hard yeah. work, you guys. If you are an empathetic being and you've actually developed, you know, any kind of shame towards telling a lie, you know, you're trying to figure out the lie kind of on the fly. So yeah, you're, you're actually trying to, uh, you know, find these kind of flushes of blood flow going through and, and trying to figure out like, you know, what's, what's going on here. And so lying with a low level of mental workload and low anxiety in the presence of a friend. What you would be looking yeah, for would yeah. <laughs> be not only a, the temperature at the tip of my nose would drop between half a degree and a full degree Celsius, while that of the forehead would rise yeah. between half a degree and 1.5 degrees Celsius. And the greater the difference in temperature change between the nose and the forehead, the more likely a person is lying. This was tested by having 60 psychology students, 60 college students, had to call home and lie or not lie to their parents. Yeah, and that was, that was like the top secret experiment, right? Where they actually, they got on the phone in front of the thermal imaging cameras and said, you know, well, here's their temperature at baseline. And then we have one actually here of a person lying to his wife. Uh, he said to his wife that he was in the road with a car problem and that I'll be back at home very late. And he lied convincingly enough to make his wife believe him. And, you know, we got a little bit of thermal changes around the rest of the scalp. And, you know, they got 85% accuracy. About 25% of the tests showed changes that indicated the anxiety and the worry, the stress that goes with lying when, in fact, the subject was not lying. So here's the starting point that we have. The polygraph sucks, right? The lie detector. You know, and, and we actually know this, and a lot of court of laws are actually taking the polygraph out as admissible evidence. Um, we don't have any other good objective measures of deception or lying. 
So these guys, they're not looking to see if your nose shrinks when you lie. <laughs> they're trying to find a good objective measure of a human being's response to the stress that they undergo when they are attempting to deceive. And what they decided to test was thermal imaging. And they just so happened that your nose shrinks a little bit and it got caught up by the press and turned into the reverse. I mean, let's Pinocchio be honest, guys. Effect. If your nose, which is made largely of cartilage, gets subjected to super cold temperatures, maybe it might retract a little. Mm? Oh my God. 15 whole minutes before we hit our first penis joke. That's a record. It is a little <laughs> on the nose. Here's the thing, though, guys. Just before we move on to the next story, Another reason this Pinocchio story is probably not the best analogy, if we look at an accurate Pinocchio, which was done by a different study at Leicester, Leicester, a different study at Leicester <laughs> University, discovered that a, a scientifically correct Pinocchio with a head of about four kilograms and a nose of six grams would only be able to tell 13 lies with his nose doubling one inch every time he lied. After 13 lies... His nose mm. would have reached 208 meters and snapped his tiny wooden neck. Now that's a stupid study. So <laughs> don't lie or your nose could grow or shrink and break your neck or do nothing. Serious science or face palm mm. finding, Santosh. <laughs> Main one that we talked about for the past 12 minutes, real science. The second okay. one. Is Moving on palm. to our next story. <laughs> Nobody wants yeah. a stupid baby. <laughs> that's not fair that's not fair stupid babies are so easy to raise and they're sweet and they're grateful for every damn thing they get people uh, would be happy babies to are be a, a stupid baby but nobody wants a stupid baby <laughs> and now a new genetic <laughs> test that lets people having in vitro fertilization screen out embryos likely to have low iq could soon become available oh. in the U.S. because, of course. <laughs> and Well, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Like, the, the predictive ability is not fantastic. There's a firm, Genomic oh, yeah, Prediction, yeah. which is definitely not an ominous name, developed screening tests yeah. that can assess complex traits, such as the risk of some diseases, which you already have genetic testing, and low intelligence. Now, the test has not yet been used, but the firm is in talks to provide them to customers at several in vitro fertilization clinics. Now, they say they're only planning to offer the option of screening out embryos deemed likely to have mental disability. But the same approach in the future by less ethical corporations, they state, could be used to identify embryos with genes that make them more likely to have a high IQ. Where to even unpack this? <laughs> Just to begin, all right, we, we should start with the main thrust of this, okay? The predictive power that they had here after looking through a, a massive, like, gene-wide study, they found a predictive power of like 3.2%, okay? And they said if they had a polygenic score looking for a bunch of genes that went along with like educational attainment, right, Josh? So you're trying to correlate a particular set of genes with 
what degrees people got. So like if they got an MD or a PhD or a bachelor's or if they finished high school. And, you know, we're not talking about a ton of concordance here. You know, they said that they could, <laughs> all in all, they could get a polygenic score to explain 11% of the variance in I educational mean, you're okay, trying to you rule out stupid babies who things. probably wouldn't be that good at math anyway. So what is eleven is eleven percent good? Is it bad? <laughs> What's that mean? Okay, you're not a stupid baby. <laughs> I'm not. No, <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> so eleven percent. Okay. Oh, now God. they're not promising IQ points. What they're looking for is outliers. Meaning this test can probably identify geniuses of both, well, genius as well as geniuses of stupidity. Yeah, they they said they can say potentially give you an option of the genes contributing to the IQ, which is still a small percent, you know, and look for the outliers that'll give you a drop of about 25 points below average. So if the average IQ is just for argument's sake, I know this isn't true, but like a hundred. So you're looking for people who have an IQ of 75 or below, potentially according to the genes that they found in this polygenic test. But the truth of the matter is, your intelligence is is multivariable. It's not just your genetic destiny. It's certainly not just the genes themselves, like the presence of particular alleles. It also has to do with what genes are turned on and turned off, which is metagenomic influences. And a array, just an absolute plethora of environmental potential impacts. Everything from the air you breathe to how much love you got. That's right. You- <laughs> no, no, guys, let me let me break away from oh, let me God. break away from that for just a moment. <laughs> really? Just a moment. Would you for just a moment? <laughs> how generous of you. Now, here's the problem. Well, there's a lot of problems with this, but as we said, this company is really looking yeah. into using this mainly with in vitro fertilization, and that's really going to limit the evil mad scientist aspects of this, because many people using in vitro fertilization only have a few embryos to choose from, not to mention most of these embryos all share the same biological parents, so there's probably not going to be that much variation in their polygenic scores. You know, if you have six or seven eggs from one donor, okay, fine. So you can rule out the dumbest egg, but the other five are still coming from the same person. We did a whole great episode on in vitro fertilization uh, back in the day, and I, I strongly encourage you to go take a listen to it for a much more mature evaluation of this process than I am traditionally apt to give. That was one of the uh, kindest ways that I've ever heard you refer to the fact that you're just BSing right now. <laughs> I, I think that's fair. I think that's fair that we, we did do a great episode on IVF and we talked about everything that goes into in vitro fertilization, the difficulties that go into it, the unpredictability, and our kind of you know, blind spots that we still have of what separates a child who is conceived with IVF versus what we call like natural conception. Essentially, you know, 
when when you want to select from embryos, you really can't do that with natural conception, right? By and large, far and away, you get a sperm to an egg and you have a singlet baby. That's the that's the most common, you know, course every single time, you know, you guys have sex and try to conceive. This really is limited, um, you know, if you're doing designer babies like this, to an IVF population. Designer so, babies. Um, Gucci. Gucci goo. Yeah. Gucci goo. That was, that was fantastic. <laughs> it is. But there are tons of traits uh, which are monoallelic or, uh, you know, single gene type of traits uh, where you can try to predict those. Intelligence is just not one of those, okay? Can't sit there and say, because of this, you're going to have an Einstein or you're going to have a Mozart. It is absolutely impossible to predict at this point in time with the science that we have. But I have to give these guys credit for, you know, doing this type of very, very large study with lots and lots of participants and even getting to a polygenic construct where you can explain anywhere between 11 to 13 percent of your intelligence the contribution just from your genes alone all right so editing out stupid babies serious science or face palm finding (laughs) that's not what they're doing (laughs) i'm gonna give this one a uh ethical dilemmas for serious science um I, moving on <laughs> uh yeah <laughs> i feel like i'm having stone tablets thrown at my head right, like i'm at the coming. foot of mount zion Hormone All right, go, go. that regrows <laughs> frog legs may one day lead to human wolverines <laughs> could we maybe break this down to the actual could we title one day regrow amputated limbs? study we've taken a small step down this road with partial regeneration of the hind legs of frogs. There. That is, was that so hard come into the realm of the real I consume you know, just a, a lot little bit. of mainstream media. And this is how they cover science news. You gotta catch the people's attention. <laughs> it's not even clickbait. Success. They're already listening. It's the middle of the episode. <laughs> Normal children, you may have had an interaction with lizards where you catch them and they pull away and leave their little tail wiggling and you're left to wonder, will a new lizard grow out of that tail? The answer is no. (laughs) But but there is a species of African frog that has relatively weak abilities to regenerate its limbs. If it loses a leg, it regrows a thin spike. Michael Levin, researcher at Tufts University and his (laughs) colleagues have taken the first step towards teaching humans to do this by teaching the frogs to not just grow a thin spike foot, but a wide paddle-like structure complete with bones, nerves, and blood vessels. So a proto-foot. This is really, really cool because naturally, if this frog loses this limb, you end up with a little bit of a nub. Um, they, If you do what they did, which was to add on this prosthesis that contained, you know, this little bit of like silk hydrogel, they were able to encourage this 
nub or spike of a limb to become a little bit more of a complete foot, although it never got back to becoming the true hind right, limb. Right, so but they used a piece of tech, which sounds so cool, called a bioreactor. They strapped on the stump this little prosthetic, which was a bioreactor with a progesterone-loaded gel sewn straight over the wound after amputation. And that cascade of steroids is what triggered the tissue regrowth. The progesterone sauce. Levin says it's really only a very (laughs) short step from frog bioreactors to human socks. Just just stick a sock on the limb. (laughs) And as long as we find the right chemicals to put in a scaled-up reactor, Mr. Science... It's it's a it's a long step. If only we if only we <laughs> could really, grow a limb to help us take that it's, step. It's a long step. I just stepped right into that. <laughs> don't no, don't you dare. Worried <laughs> about putting your foot in your mouth there? Oh so not really off. a lot. I mean, even this study admits that they make a few jumps in the scientific method. They're like, so we managed to get a frog that yeah. already regrows limbs to regrow a slightly more specialized limb. And next step, human regeneration. So there there were two principles at work here. One was a principle of bioregeneration. And the reason that they decided to work on this particular species or, or genus of frog called Xenopus. By the way, Xenopus, you can use it all the way from the adult frog for really cool stuff like limb regeneration, all the way to using its eggs which are fantastic simulators for cell surfaces and cell surface markers to do things like conductivity and transport. So I actually love this model just a ton. But the real idea here was if you can have variable vertebrate hind limb regeneration, right? So you can encourage it from going to like a little bit of a spike with a little bit of tissue all the way to having some bone and some flap by delivering some small molecule drugs um, with a prosthesis put on there, this can become a model for progressing this science. So this is really neat, Josh, because this is a progenitor model. This is a first-time use of a technology like this, you know, the bioreactor, um, to chart the progress of hind limb regrowth in these animals. And so... The hope is that if it works pretty well in this proof of concept, you can take this a little further with the right bioreactor. If you put it together, you can deliver these drugs into the growing hind limb and improve the growth of the limb or the regrowth of the limb. This is like step one in a long progress to first regrow Xenopus or frog hind limbs, and hopefully translate this to growing other vertebrate limbs, such as humans, once we figure out what we humans are missing that the Xenopus has, which allows the Xenopus, the frog, Although to regrow their limb at all. You know, abilities from frogs. I'd like to put in a request for that super long tongue. <laughs> oh no. And second. <laughs> Uh, the hairy okay, frog, I don't... a Central African species yes. of frog, also known as the wolverine what? frog, literally makes bone claws that it just pops out its skin to defend itself. Again, again, 
I encourage you. We're not a zoological no, but show. But you guys need to look this up. Like, scientists are learning a lot about these frogs. Nothing that ties into human medicine yet. But if we can regrow limbs, why not claws? On, on human this, regeneration. On fuel. Based on frog limbs. <laughs> Serious I science. Just, face palm finding. Yeah. So Serious hard. science. This was fantastic. I know you're... All right. A vaccine All right. That's, can that's cure fair. That wasn't allergies. as ludicrous as I thought it was going to get. I hate Next. you. About yes, 1% of the global population uh, suffers from celiac disease. The, yeah, the real thing, which is an autoimmune disorder the way, that like damages the small intestine when a person ingests gluten. Celiac disease is hereditary. This is not the same thing as a gluten allergy or a gluten intolerance. Before we get into that, a new treatment that is currently in phase two <laughs> clinical trials sure. could allow people who have celiac disease to actually start including gluten in their diets. What does true celiac disease do? True celiac disease, we're talking about where your intestinal lining actually gets destroyed when you encounter gluten. Gluten intolerance is like, oh, gluten is more like lactose intolerance. You eat it, you're going to feel some pain. <laughs> but it's not going to do permanent <laughs> lasting damage. It, it's very possible that rather than being gluten allergic or intolerant, um, you might more than likely be fructan. Right now, the only thing a person with celiac disease can do is just cut gluten out entirely from their diets. However, yeah. this new treatment... Well, because unlike celiac disease, gluten sensitivity and tolerance don't cause damage to the lining of the small intestine, but the body will in, will identify it as a foreign invader. But about 83% of people with celiac disease are undiagnosed or misdiagnosed because it's very similar and presents to a lot of other conditions. So this new vaccine, which has the creative name of Nexvax2, probably because the Nexvax1 was the initial draft is specifically designed to work against an HLA. And we've talked about HLA antibodies. Uh, 90% yeah. of people with celiac have this one yeah. specific HLA form, and that's what the vaccine targets. So it's given in multiple doses to reprogram T cells to stop triggering a pro-inflammatory response. So this is another vaccine that's not really a vaccine it's almost more like a genetic therapy yeah this is a beautiful new horizon for autoimmune diseases for cancers um it may even work on degenerative diseases in the future um where you have inflammatory cascades and t-cells kind of running out of control and targeting the wrong enzyme or the wrong protein or the wrong particle Stuff that we actually need, not stuff that should be identified as a horrible, horrible invader. And you kind of retrain them or reteach them using exposure to the offending molecule in just the right way so that they're like, huh, I thought this thing was pure evil, but I guess it's all right. Which presumably would involve injecting some of this gluten into non gastro bloodstream so injecting it away from the stomach so it doesn't cause that damaging even in small amounts but can still provoke the immune response needed to create a brand new immunity i i actually really love this and you know the development of this vaccine 
it, it does a great service to people who are looking at an array of immune diseases. You know, you can start with something like gluten disease, like celiac, but, you know, you may end up treating type 1 diabetes, multiple sclerosis, as a for instance, you know, other autoimmune conditions like this, lupus. So it's proof of concept for epitope-specific immunotherapy, meaning targeting just the HLA antibodies associated with that specific disease. So even though we're approaching it from our, well, ridiculous studies of you can cure all celiac disease. Well, Santosh, why don't you give us the final call on this one? Serious science. Face palm finding. This one's actually a real vaccine that's coming out in phase two clinical trials. We have to see if it works. Um, you know, they've passed safety and, uh, and tolerability kind of trials, and now they were getting into efficacy. So this one is unsettled right now. So we're getting into that real randomized, double blind, placebo controlled clinical trials. Um, I'm very happy about it. I love this approach to autoimmune disease. Um, I'll call it real science. Moving on to our penultimate study. Sick ants stay clear of their coworkers to avoid disease spreading. I'm going to take a moment right here before we jump into this to just remind you guys it's flu season. Go get your vaccines. Yeah, yeah. And then you can hang out with your sick ants or... or or your okay. uncles. <laughs> All of you at home who saw that one coming, despite the fact this is not a visual medium, raise your hands. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Looking out over the sea of raised hands. You yeah. walked into that. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. On, on the by, we as physicians right now, we're like human doctors. We're about to give you guys a study about arthropods. So just to add some. Well, okay. There's a reason for this. And I'm going to bury the lead and tell you the reason is go get your flu shots. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's always a good lesson. I, I don't know if you guys are going to uh, get the lesson from, but let's, let's talk about ants in their colonies. And Do you wish that your coughing, sneezing, stuffy, aching, headed, <laughs> fevered colleagues would stay away from the office? Well, unlike some humans... Ants seem to understand the importance <laughs> okay. of avoiding others when they're infected. For example, when they're exposed to a fungal pathogen, they reduce their contact yeah. with workers inside the nest. This was discovered after careful study using an ant tracking system in Switzerland. An ant tracking system. And the researchers exposed some of the foragers to spores of a deadly fungus. Now, within one day of exposure to the pathogen, so before the ants became visibly sick, separation Aww. between work groups was reinforced. All of those who had been exposed Aww. changed their behavior, spent more time outside the nest, and decreased their contact with other workers. Those that were not exposed to the pathogen but had to interact with those who were exposed took steps to isolate themselves and nurses moved all the pediatric ants, pedi ants, eat deeper inside the nest. It's not clear how they're recognizing the infection, and that actually could be an interesting area for study that would apply to humans. 
But <laughs> changes in these behavior reduce the spread of infections and protect healthy workers and the queen from disease. So it is actually a really great way to do epidemiological studies. And it's amazing that ants already automatically quarantine themselves and practice universal precautions. I, I thought this was absolutely amazing. Um, the biggest kind of piece of information uh, of all of this that I absolutely love was really that the ants recognize, are able to tell, uh, you know, as far as we can tell, which of their colleagues or which of their buddies are sick. Like they, they can read these types of behavior. And we should know about this, right? Because, you know, they already communicate with each other. They move their antenna and their bodies in certain ways to say where, where's food, there's danger coming, there's all these kind of things. So I'm sure that you have neurological pathways to look at a friend of yours and be like, you don't look quite right. Well, I mean, Santosh, even as doctors, we all develop a what we call sixth sense, meaning, you know, you know, when certain patients come in and you can tell when they're not going to do. Well. <laughs> all right. Fair, fair. No, no. I, you know. It takes a lot of cortical power, uh, you know, to recognize a face and a body to, to tell you the truth, you know, we, as physicians, we develop like a nuanced look at it and say, oh, you know, there's, there, there's a little bit more that I can kind of tell that, uh, there's something wrong here, you know, as opposed to, oh, you just look off. We have a part of our brain, Josh, that's dedicated to just recognizing human faces. But you're telling me that teeny tiny ant brain can go, that's my buddy ant, he's in my colony, and it looks off, saying, stay away from me, and I gotta keep away from you so I don't get what you got. Yeah. That's awesome. Anyway, a question for another day. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on to yeah, moving yeah, on to our final. Now we're reaching probably <laughs> the most serious yeah. science. Santosh, in the one in the one story that is most applicable to one of your fields of study. Yeah. Scientists have finally solved the age old question how long does it uh, take okay. to poop a Lego? Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is I feel like the owl with the Tootsie Roll Pop. Mr. Owl, how many poops does it take oh, I don't to get the Lego center? <laughs> okay. Oh my god. I use, because he starts licking and then it's like a one, a two. One, two, three. For those of you who have no clue what we're talking about, there was a Tootsie Roll commercial in the 1970s that was amazing. For those of you who don't know what Tootsie Rolls are, I can't even talk to you. It's old, it's old people candy yeah. now. Yeah. No, 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 don't run away. It's we can be modern. I'm hip. <laughs> it really is. Although I, I I like the occasional Tootsie Roll. Okay, so poop a Lego, and by the way, Google knows that I have that in my search history now. Let's be honest. Most parents probably do. Six curious scientists have answered the call of duty. <laughs> uh, okay. 
<laughs> there's a science right there. There's a science oh, writer out there with gosh. my sense of humor. Okay. All right. Um, Six scientists answered a call of duty to determine how long it takes for a single Lego piece to complete its journey through the body once it's been swallowed. So then they can slap that warning label onto the box appropriate for ages, you know, this young to will stop swallowing Legos. The group appear to think life's poo short not to find out how Lego blocks end up at the bottom of the toilet bowl. Yeah. Did you uh, did you get all that out of your system? According to the publication, the aim of the study was to determine typical transit times for an item commonly swallowed by children. And before I give you the results, uh, to make the already intriguing exploration even more memorable, the timed results were given the... You know how I always complain about scientists being terrible at naming things? Not this group! Guys, uh, I, I I personally like to think that they, you know, they listened to our podcast and then they heard the disappointment in your voice just week after week and decided to just be like, we're going to make that young Dr. Dvoretsky quite happy today. These scientists, after listening to our podcast extensively, named the retrieval time for the Legos between swallowing and pooping the found and retrieve time or fart time for the Lego. Oh, oh, did you find the other score? Are, are you talking about the assessment for gastrointestinal surgery and inability to ingest foreign objects? Or I should say a stool hardness and transit score, a.k.a. shat? That would be it. Yeah, yeah. They had pre-ingestion bowel habits determined by the SHAT score, and then they ingested the Lego head, and then figured out the fart score. They shat, they farted, until it departed, and we learned that a toy block of an average Lego head size should pass through a standard intestinal tract in about 1.71 days on average. And, you know, these are a little older, you know, we've got uh, lowest age here is 27 and highest age, you know, oldest person here was 45. Uh, you know, they've got a, the, they've got a pre-shat score sitting in the threes, fours, and fives. And then they've got a shat score, uh, you know, anywhere from two to like 5.6. But the fart score is, I have to say, there was one outlier. Of three, but most of them sat right around like 1.5. I'm going to go ahead and let you know, because I'm looking at the table here, that patient B, I can't believe I'm doing this, patient B searched through 13 stools over the two-week period and didn't find anything. So they got a fart score of not applicable. (laughs) Did you fart? Nah. So they weren't able to calculate a shat score or a fart score for that person. Wait, all right, all right. Last, last thing we should mention about this study. There was some evidence that females may be more accomplished at searching through their stool than males, but this could not be statistically validated. Oh you. my God. You have so many important studies to read week after week. This is the one where you just digested every detail and passed it on no that was my fault again that one (laughs) 
look, guys, this is actually an important study because little kids swallow stuff often. And swallowers are one of the biggest issues in GI. If you swallow coins or batteries or small objects, they can get stuck in your intestinal tract. They can cause outpouchings of your colon known as diverticula that are at risk for bleeds or infections. They can cause perforations if they're sharp objects. And Legos is one of the most popular toys in the world with numerous small pieces. So I'm going to go out and preempt Santosh by saying this is serious science. It's just presented in a very ridiculous way. Well, I mean, you know, it's in a legitimate journal, Journal of Pediatrics and Child Health, (laughs) and researchers here who ate Legos for science. I can't, I can't, you know, fault these wonderful people. If we combine the Shat score and the Fart score with the Bristol stool scale, I feel like we can create one big unified poop theory i hope so uh there there was one outlier here and then there was the other you know 41 year old male who who never found the head they they have some guidance on like how fast you should find you know a lego in a stool at least if it's a little lego head um, yep, and I, I do want to, you know, sentence. give them props for not so, swallowing something know, that was like angular, like a block, which could maybe actually hurt them. Yeah, this was like nice and smooth and cylindrical. Can you imagine so that was, the that Lego was character going through somebody's intestine? He's like, boy, it sure is dark in here. What? Where am I? What is this? Oh, oh, this oh, is, God. Oh, I, God, no. This, if no! this doesn't show up in like the Lego movie three or something i'm just title card two days later 1.71 days later so that's (laughs) it for this week due to the aforementioned busyness throwing off our recording schedule i haven't had a lot of just the tips for you lately but more are coming i've sent our field reporters out to (laughs) gather stories from around the world and i mean Uh, real field reporters not the imaginary friends i usually send out this is going to be the year we get a budget folks brace yourselves As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, Uh, or financially, you can find links to do that in the show notes, along with all the sources we used researching this episode. Please rate and review us. It helps other folks find the show. Tell everyone you know, because we love the company. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. Oh.